Okay, hello there, and welcome to Open Sources Guelph here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico, and joining me is... Scotty Hertz. Adam, do you think we should take the source mobile and go to police college? I hear the tuition's <laughs> free now. We could be the next, like, Starsky it's... and Hutch or take your uh... pick. I don't, I don't know. It's like a, it's a solid weekend to get that badge. It's no, I'm kidding. <laughs> the I weekender. That'd be funny. <laughs> I know that it's three weeks or it's three. And uh, now it's not three weeks. It's it's, a, it's several months. There's a process. There's a real pro. We're joking around, but there's a process. Yeah, but it's funny that, you know, what's interesting, too. And this is getting into the weeds like right off the bat is like at the police board meeting last week. Um, the, the HR report said that they were they had essentially stopped taking applications because they've gotten so many applications. Oh, so it's I don't know where this idea is that we don't have enough people who want to be police officers that we m- need to make it easier because it seems like a lot of people want to be police officers despite the the challenges. So it's in people's heads. Well, but it's again, a topic for another day, probably. Right? I it's <laughs> it's in somebody's head, like a lot of things. Anyway, Open Source is a CFRU's political and current affairs discussion show, and you can find us here every Thursday at 5 p.m. as we talk about the latest news items from Guelph, Ontario, Canada, and around the world. And we sometimes interview local newsmakers and politicians, which this week will be Ward Five Councillor Leanne Caron, who's going to talk to us about some of the. Uh, changes that our province made to Guelph's official plan a couple of weeks ago, housing issues and working through them with the U of G, and uh, we'll have some heritage talk with uh, Doors Open Guelph coming this weekend. That's going to be in the bottom half of the show. For the first half, we're going to talk about some news items from the last week, including King Charles. Apparently, there's not a lot of enthusiasm for the new king, and we will see if Scotty can set the curve on that. (laughs) But first... No problem. <laughs> but first, uh, we were talking about this before we started recording. PSAC is on strike. Uh, this is the public services uh, union uh, representing a lot of different workers. Uh, a lot of the focus has been on CRA, obviously, because it's the tax deadline is a cu- in a couple of days. But um, even down in Six Nations, school kids down in Six Nations are off from school because those teachers are... PSAC workers. And so it affects all sorts of crown corporations, government departments. Talking about 120,000 people in all, the strike has been carrying on for now in its second week, uh, unless it somehow miraculously came to an end between our recording and our airtime. Um, but given the um, press release from the Treasury Board President today, it doesn't sound like that's going to be a possibility. So we're quite comfortable proceeding talking about a strike as if it's happening. So, Scotty, as a resident labor expert, um, clear your oh, guns. <laughs> Ready to rock. Yeah, the large protest. It's we record Wednesday. We're recording Wednesday this week and large protest on Parliament Hill that I just happened to catch a bit of uh, before we sat down. And Chris Alward said specifically, who's the head of uh, PSAC, PSAC, was saying that I think I heard it right that they've they've caved on their wage demand, which mm-hmm. is significant. If I heard that correctly, mm-hmm. the wage wages being one of the largest uh, topics of discussion, and I would say, as you put it so nicely, the resident labor expert. I wouldn't quite go that far, but <laughs> it's difficult to win on wages in these kinds of um, labor disputes. Mm. It really is. 
Although in this day and age, maybe not so much. I think that there is tacit support out there from the public saying, yeah, you know what? Things are expensive. Uh, I guess the opposite side of that is the people that are like, well, you know, you, you're a bunch of overpaid. Well, like, we'll get into that a bit too, I suppose. <laughs> right. Jumping around a bit here. But anyway, so if he said they're caving on that wage demand, that is significant. One of the other demands, which is also significant in 2023 and our still COVID day and age is the working remotely and working from home. Uh, Mona Fortier had said that that was a, a red line for mm-hmm. the government mm-hmm. or sorry. Let's for the treasury board. I think there is some confusion as to who is actually negotiating too, because right. also keeps saying that the prime minister needs to come to the table, but that's not completely correct. So the, the treasury board side is made up of cabinet members mm-hmm. of this government. And this, the, the, I guess the top ranking one would be Christopher Freeland. Mm-hmm. So she's actually on the treasury board. Uh, it, I could see her going to the table. Maybe I have no idea who's on either side of this. Uh, usually with <laughs> negotiations, it would be you call in certain people for if you're discussing certain topics like labor is uh, Seamus O'Regan. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure how that's going down, but um, Forte is this is the spokesperson and she had published an open letter, which was kind of unusual. I'm not sure if you saw it, Adam. Mm hmm. I just I saw the pricey of it, and it that is an unusual move as well because it's always it's generally bad form to negotiate in the media. Although Alward said that he was glad to see it because he sounds like he got more from that than he they were getting from the uh, Treasury Board, the opposite side of the table directly, mm-hmm. and that's always mm-hmm. difficult. It sounds like there's a lag time between the exchange of ideas and what is coming out. It should be relatively quick relatively fast but as we know strike or no strike the things at the federal level work at a different pace than the rest of the universe right so if you're passing negotiation stuff back and forth on the weekend that may take a little bit more time mm-hmm. so that's that is the thing and it's it's the the question is how long is that going to drag out mm-hmm well, I mean, if there has been caving on the wage, and you're right, that's kind of always the sticky wick. And it's also the obvious, most obvious thing to point at. Uh, there was a report from the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives that said that actually, when you compare public sector workers to other workers, you know, they have as much buying power now as they did in 2007 and are actually at the lower end in terms of, of you know, uh, workers, uh, the amount of buying power that they have. Um, so what what essentially that means is um, in, in terms of like the ratio of how much money you make to how much things cost, um, if you were a public sector worker for PSAC in 2007, you have the same amount of, I guess, liquidity as, as you do now, you know, 20 years later. So you're right that the wage part isn't going to probably, although again, it, it's the simplest thing to report. It's like, and then you get all the... Canadian Taxpayers Federation peeps oh. riled up and yeah. Um so I mean that was always going to be the, the the easy part of this. The harder part is right is the work from home. Um because this sets the, I think this is the first time it's come up in negotiations. Um but it sets the tone. So if you let your PSAC workers um be able to sort of make some determinations about how much time they get to work from home or 
how much time they get to go they have to show face at the office uh i that's it's not illogical to think that that's going to be coming up in in future um labor negotiations too and yeah i mean there's more labor nego- i mean there's labor strife all over the place uh i just got a thing today grand river transit might be on strike may 1st so oh, yeah, yeah up the road so uh for anyone who who commutes in in kw uh you know be, be on the lookout for striking workers uh maybe next week uh yeah and and i and i also understand why it's gonna be a sticky wicket because again um I've mentioned before on the show, my sister Elizabeth is a, a Walmart manager and she like this scratches her itch, this like demand to work from home. She, Cause she's, you know, as a Walmart manager, as an essential worker, like she had to roll with all the punches, all the COVID conditions. She had to go into work. You know, she's the one who had to like order, you know, the clothing area to be taped off when Doug Ford said, we're not going to sell any clothes for a couple of weeks and, uh, and all those rule changes. And, and, I think there are a lot of workers like that. And again, you don't want to break this down to it's like we're getting a thing. Some workers are getting a thing and other workers don't get that thing because I've talked about this in conversation with Fred Hahn this week, not to name drop Fred Hahn was on my other podcast, but Mm. um, it's like stuff that the union fights for eventually trickles down to non-union labor because that sets the tone. But I mean, the negotiation is is what's hard here is um it, it's always harder to be the first one out the door and it's it's unfortunate like it's it's such a large labor contingent that it it is going to set the curve and um i understand why it's going to be so hard for anybody to blink on this yeah absolutely and the the government needs it, the stance they're taking and i'm not sure how long it'll last mm-hmm. like they they have a fairly even with everything that's going on, this the liberal federal government has a fairly good relationship with labor at this level. Mm-hmm. So they have to stay a bit sweet, let's say. And that I think that's <laughs> why you're getting the neutral statements from Justin Trudeau and others. But he also, I mean, I, I my perception is he really needs to stay out of it as much yeah. as he can because yeah. then it, it it will it will play like interference, and of course the opposition that will pounce on that. Even though if the roles were reversed, it might be a little bit different. His, pr- you know, his that, presence again, politicizes everything. Oh, absolutely. So he needs to remain as neutral as possible. But yeah. I, you know, there's no way he's going to the table. Uh, and this is this is this has been two years in the making. So this is yeah. actually going to be backdated, right? That's not. That's and of course the blame COVID and other things. Interestingly enough, right? It's like <laughs> why do we want to work from home? COVID. Why uh, and and for other reasons too. Right, mm-hmm. you would want to work at home, but there's there's a perception that the majority of these workers are just have these cushy jobs that work from home. And as you mentioned about wages, they're not um, out of line with regular industry in most cases. Plus, there's a ton of people that absolutely have to go in. Thinking people that work in the rail, the federal railway, um, down at the docks, sure, any security on Parliament Hill, like when the convoy was on, they're all peace sack as well. So they can, mm-hmm. you know, it's not as if they can remove themselves and just be from home. But again, it's as you said about pitting worker against worker in terms of, well, they're going to get that. We're not. It's like, well, you would hope you could extend something like that to as many people as possible. The problem I think with it, and this is just me speculating, is that there's mm. a bunch of middle management out there. They're looking for, you know, the covers for the TPS reports. 
that are going to find themselves without jobs because I mean, you're not self-maintaining when you're working from home, but there is less of a need for that level of management. It also yeah. puts it forward how many of those awful postmodern buildings you see in Ottawa that that are the standard issue government building in Canada because of when they were built mm -hmm. is going to be empty if there's enough people working from home from a regular basis. There's a lot of real estate involved, right? Mm -hmm. So. And that's it. I'm just putting that out there in terms of like extra things that may be going on beyond just the labor, just beyond the work itself. Um, and I think some of that is probably being taken into consideration. Maybe not heavily, but it is, it is, you know, it all it all adds up to bigger picture stuff. So yeah, as I I think it's highly unlikely that they're gonna find a settlement this week. I it's, it's possible that it's all just bluster and you know, everybody's up at parliament hill today doing the chance but I mean, yeah who knows maybe yeah, they will it's it just it sounds like there isn't any movement uh, although i think they had mentioned it was 570 something like that demands a lot of that will just be mm -hmm. uh, the literal crossing of the t's and syntax stuff so it sounds like a ton of stuff but some of it will just be changes in language to clarity or some things that are letters of uh, understanding or letters of agreement be brought into the collective agreement. So it's not, it sounds like a lot, 570 demands sounds like, oh, that's excessive. But I would guarantee that probably 500 of those are just to do with grammatical errors, probably. Yeah, they've said that it's it's kind of like four sticking points. It's the wage, it's the work from home, it's um, contracting out, although there seems to be some disagreement about whether or not that's, a thing there's disagreement on and then the other thing is just making sure that if you know there are cuts that um you're starting you know first person in or last person in first person out kind of ideal seniority yeah seniority um yeah it's 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 really there there is a lot of bluster i think you're right i think you know there's a lot of um you know to watch <laughs> Aylward on the weekend, you know, that, that was, a, there was a lot of fist pumping, a lot of, you know, chest pumping. Yeah. Uh, that's his job, right? That's, is, that's his job. Yeah. 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 He's, yeah. that's, that's what he's supposed to, that's what good union leader is supposed to do. Um, alternatively about the, the politicking stuff, uh, <laughs> less, like, uh, best, best note on the, the strike to me last weekend, Tom Mulcair on CTV news, he says, uh, PSAC needs to read the room about, <laughs> <laughs> the former NDP leader is telling the union to read the room. Uh, starting to understand why he's not prime minister, but um, That's pretty rich. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that undercurrent you talked about, I think that is correct. I, and we've seen that in New York with a lot of the, um, the financial industry there who don't like having empty office buildings because people want to work from home. It, that that's, I mean, that's a big driver of a lot of this too, is the real estate side. What happens in a world where yep. we don't need as much office space and where does that, that office space go? That expensive office space, you know, these are all like huge questions that <laughs> this, that forms this very, I mean, ultimately very tiny slice in the grand scheme of things of, of the labor concerns, but Yeah. Yeah, and that's the, the spoiled baby narrative too comes from corporate, whether it's you know mm -hmm. federally federal people that are corporate minded or you, you do you've seen I've seen some headlines like you know they really should be legislated back to work. I was like, well, really should they though? If you've got the the support of the people, the fellow workers out there, then yeah, you you you, 
you could lose, but you probably won't. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think it's, that's, that's always kind of like the immediate talk from some quarters, but anyway, that's uh, probably a to be continued. Um, in the meantime, uh, King Charles the third will be formally coronated next week in uh, a, a, a low rent kind of coronation. I don't, not entirely sure what that's going to look like, but uh, what I do know is that a lot of people in Canada are asking some questions that you don't think they'd be asking even five years ago. 50, 52% in an Angus Reid poll uh, of Canadians said that they do, they do not want the country to be a constitutional monarchy. That's a very slim majority within the margin of error. Um, but 88% think that it is worth having a conversation about a constitutional debate. 28% have a favorable favorable view of Charles himself. 60% oppose recognizing Charles as king, including not singing God Save the King. I'm not sure how often that comes up in life <laughs> here in Canada, but, you know, whatever. Um, when, when the war is on, we'll sing that one again. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, 52% think that Charles is going to be worse than, you know, Queen Elizabeth II. I think this, when we've kind of spoken about this before, I, I think I've I've made the point that this was always going to, you know, any talk about, like, going Republican smart small r republican um what mm. would come up after queen elizabeth ii died and i think you know unfortunately well it's unfortunate she died she was a nice old lady but um you know when she did pass away we were right in the middle of the municipal election so we didn't really get a chance to rake out on this but i i think that's to be expected i think people are seeing this as a transitional moment and are asking themselves important questions yeah and it's a well, it's a 70-year transition too, right? It's a completely mm. different world now than it was when Elizabeth got the crown in 1952. Mm -hmm. And there's similar discussions in the UK as well. The percentage is a is a lot higher actually than it is in Canada in terms of support for the monarchy, but it is again less. I think it's gone down about 20%. It hasn't dipped below 50 yet. But among young people, among the Gen Zs, it is mm. super low. It's in the basement. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that is ever going to rise, regardless of how much the they they're putting forward that oh well William will be next and he's young and he's hip and <laughs> is he really though? I see how he of dresses. Course. He's not that hip, yeah. <laughs> and of course, there's the distraction of of Harry and Meghan, which is getting a lot of ink, which the, the royals don't want, of course. And that is all going to come to head after the coronation, the the court case, also with uh, Murdoch and company. Mm -hmm. And that might blow some things wide open because here is somebody no member of the royal family has ever sat in court and testified ever in history. And it's a long history. This is like a this let's consider this a thousand year run. That's how long they've been crowning people at Westminster Abbey, right? Mm -hmm. So the times are changing. Top story on the BBC this morning was a life-size chocolate bust <laughs> of King Charles III has been made by the Mars Company. So, you know, that's the level of discussion. <laughs> out of the gate in the uk on an average day of the week before the coronation so did you hear about the quiche and no tell me because it, it's there's apparently this like disgusting quiche that they've made in honor of king charles that <laughs> it's i mean that's you're right this is kind of like the level of the discourse right this moment and there, there was another story about um, they've discovered like a rich vein of beer that was specially made for Edward VIII's coronation that, you yeah, know, see that one. Yeah. Which, which went, you know, um, famously, but uh, terribly, uh, before world war two, 
so i mean yeah we're this is like the silly portion of it and yeah there i mean no matter how wishy-washy people feel about the monarchy we're still going to be flooding the zone with anchors broadcasting live from london next week so it's 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 it, once we get past that though i i just i find it interesting i i do wonder how like why are people so pessimistic about charles is it because you know the you know the queen had this long stretch to sort of like set her legacy like 70 years um like no one's going to beat that that's good. that's a, probably a record that's going to stand for for the rest of time um mm-hmm. Her, and kind of like how fondly she remembers kind of judged purely on the fact that most people only remember one queen in their lives um so i mean the, there's also this co- topic of conversation that charles is a bit more political than his mother was his mother uh, queen elizabeth was very kind of apolitical she didn't really get into the morass too much and Ch- charles has had because he's had nothing but time to sort of get political he's been very active on climate change and and other different charities and you know is that going to carry over into his um his kingly um reign um you know we have this kind of triggering thing about you know our world is so political but at the same time we hate being political it's that's that that's kind of a weird thing that we're kind of foisting on on charles as well um yeah it, it there's a lot of unanswered questions so i mean it'll be interesting to see what happens when the silliness of of this abates like the kind of the pomp and circumstance of it like are we just going to like go on about our lives and charles will be on our money and we won't talk about it anymore or is this just is there a real momentum to this um i mean cuz opening up the constitution is no small thing and again because things are so political i uh, whether we're talking about voting reform or electoral reform or anything where we have to reopen a constitution, I'm just like, are we serious enough people to reopen the constitution at this moment? Can we trust ourselves to reopen the constitution, even if it's something we should look at? That's a, that's a question I don't have an answer to. Yeah. And it's fairly locked in to like other places because people make the comparison and say, why was it so easy for Barbados to leave? Mm. It's because it, they just needed to vote on it. It's like, okay, should we leave? Okay, we're done. Whereas yeah. because of the our Constitution, 1982, I don't know if it was a concession, but there's lots of things locked in there that probably didn't need to be just to make it happen. Yeah. Very Canadian thing, right? Let's do this long analysis on all the things we can put in there. And that includes like the school system, among other things, right? It's preserved. So things that need to be debated and discussed. Now, is the will there? I don't know. Maybe there's just so much indifference. Ah, we've always had the king. We've always had the queen. Yeah. Let's just keep them. This is tradition. And a lot of this does go to tradition. Now, supposedly this, I'm not sure if this, I don't think it is going to buck tradition. It sounds like all of the, the majority of the regalia that's been involved with this ceremony since way back. (laughs) <laughs> is including you know, dragging out the old throne that was custom made a thousand years ago and getting the stone of destiny back from Scotland <laughs> just to make a point. We're going to sit on your stone again. Uh, there's a whole story there as well, but finally saw it in person actually it was like, yeah, there it is. Um, <laughs> where, am I, where am I going with this? Yeah. So part of the problem they're saying, <gasps> okay, we're going to, we're going to modernize this thing, but it's such a throwback, particularly there's a point in the, in coronations where the King or queen sovereign is anointed. Mm-hmm. Which is their way of saying that still their way of saying after all this time that they've been chosen by God to rule over this nation and the colonies and everything within the the realm. Mm-hmm. That's how it works. Mm-hmm. So you you got all these the bedazzled crown with or bejeweled bedazzled 
bejeweled crown with from from all of the colonies there there's certain there's certain gear that they're keeping out of the limelight because it's 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 too touchy yet like the is it the coronure diamond mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. he wants it back right we want mm-hmm. that back because you stole that from us mm-hmm. uh, and i think that's the difference now from say 1952 when you know Britain's colonial influence was was a lot greater even then. Mm-hmm. Was that this kind of thing was just sort of oh, this is we just accept this because that's the way it's been for hundreds of years. But now it's like, no, we're going to break all this down <laughs> piece by piece uh, because it needs it, it needs to be broken down. Why mm-hmm. why are we, why are you doing this? Britain's poverty rate right now is like double Canada's. It's twenty percent. Yeah. We've got the government there saying, "Oh, you should just, you should just." I just briefly saw a headline today. It's like, "No, you should, do, you should expect that level of poverty. You should just accept that." <laughs> so, how can you have that level of poverty and everything that goes with that? Among the other issues in the UK, Brexit, you name it. There's a <laughs> lot of people hungry. There's a lot of people mad. There's a lot of people can't afford to live. It's the same in Canada too, to a degree, but it is definitely worse there. And you were mm. just supposed to suck it up next week and accept that. I don't think he's wearing the ermine robe. I think that's been canceled. That's modernization, <laughs> right? So he's not, you know, the furs aren't coming out. But I mean, he's still going to be riding in a carriage that they had to take out a wall to get it yeah. out of its its storage area. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure what the, did you hear what the price tag is? I'm sure it's, I'm, I'm going to say like, a, it's probably like a hundred million pounds. I could be wrong. For the whole thing? Yeah, do you know? I, I don't. I never. I haven't see. heard. No, but I mean that doesn't. It's millions sound... of pounds anyway. It's not just. It's not like a couple of. But we're just gonna have a little party. Yeah. I mean, the, the Elizabeth's coronation was still austerity years in the UK, but they managed to pull out the stops. Mm. Uh, this time, it's like money is probably no object, although it should be. Hmm. Right. So I. And I, I mean, they are also selling it as like a pared down affair. But again, if you're if you're like looting the museum to get all the the knickknacks out it's you know how how pared down can it be and if you're bringing like a freaking stone for, down from Scotland because it's the quote unquote stone of destiny it's yeah what was the other thing i saw that there's there's pieces of supposedly the cross of the crucifixion being worked yeah. into a piece of art it's like really that was the pope's gift yeah the pope's gift it's like really, really so like how is that modernizing the thing it's not you're still the head of the church of england automatically when this happens which I'm, was created <laughs> so henry the eighth could divorce what was it up to six i think eventually yeah. two lost their heads like the whole the business with camilla it's like oh you can't have a divorce it's like the whole thing is structured built on divorce divorced, 400 years ago or however long now di- divorced right? beheaded died divorced beheaded survived yeah. that's the that's the mnemonic thing for henry the eighth's wives Ah, oh, right. Okay. <laughs> no, that way. But it's, you know, that's, they're saying, well, we're going to modernize this because we have a divorcee now being the king. It's like, no, you dig back in time. You don't have to go very far when it was, it was mayhem, right? And to, to, to tie this off, I just got to say, if the Pope is like gifting pieces of the cross to Charles, like it's no big thing. Like what else is the Vatican hoarding? I think that's another question we should answer another day, but... Uh, show for us now, the money. Show us the money. Hey, Pope, show us the money. Um, hey, we'll leave that there. Uh, we'll come back in a minute with Leanne Caron. You're listening to Open Sources Guelph. You're on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. Some things 
familiar voice to you that was andrea bocelli who is playing the coronation concert and he's was singing a song from another king there being elvis <laughs> presley can't help falling in love with you or the king or camilla or who knows who's <laughs> going to be falling in love with whom after the supper but it sounds like they were having some difficulty getting musicians but andrea's stepping up what are the sex pistols doing these days I don't know. <laughs> i'm just Anyway, that was my second pick for the music, but I thought that'd be a bit too basic. <laughs> yeah, no, that was an I'm inception. not trying to be respectful in any way, as people know, but yeah. Yeah, <laughs> no, that was an inception cut. That was like a, a level inside a level inside a level. But um, speaking of our local level government, uh, we're joined this week by Ward 5 Councillor Leanne Caron, and uh, it's been a cu- busy couple of weeks at council. If you follow my my tweeting about it so there was the comprehensive zoning bylaw passed last week there was a new transit fair strategy passed this week the opa 80 um the ontario government rendered its decision about it a couple of weeks ago um so if you're worried about height downtown that was a concerning document uh housing especially around u of g involving u of g students that's been in the news and uh because Leanne's on and she's the unofficial minister of local heritage, we're going to talk about doors open and bicentennial stuff too. So let's uh, roll that tape on our interview with Leanne Caron starting right now. Leanne Caron, thank you so much for hopping on with me today. Always a pleasure, Adam. Uh, I want to start with something you shared on social media. On the, I think it was a couple of weekends ago after the OPA 80 decision came out. You I don't know if that was some of your own personal artwork or if you uh, sent out, but this picture of like big, tall buildings along McDonald, looking up towards the Basilica of Our Lady, I guess it's kind of a warning of, I guess, theoretically where we could go. But just to like let cooler heads prevail for a minute, we have a lot of safeguards like it's we're not going to snap our fingers and wake up next year and there's going to be like a dozen proposals for like 23 story buildings all over downtown like that. It's going to take a while to ramp up that far. Right. Well, I mean, it will because the people who own those properties still have work to do to get a development proposal um, to to the building department for a building permit. But when the policy allows it, Mm. things things could go quickly. And Mm. without policy to have that um, control... Um, what you saw in that rendering, which I did on Photoshop, I did, I, I Googled 23 story apartment building and I took some images, uh, and I superimposed them on McDonnell within the sightline corridors where the policy allows 20, the 23 story height. So although it was a bad Photoshop job, it was realistically under the new policy possible. And mm. possible is what keeps me awake at night. I suppose that's fair. I just, and, and I don't want to mitigate the danger as well, but, you know, we're working on, well, not, not us, but, you know, the, the city staff is working on a, 
heritage district conservation plan for the downtown. I mean, a lot of yeah. those buildings are on the, the, the list already, like pretty much all of Wilson street and McDonald street and Cardin street is on a list is on that list. It just, um, but they're not protected, but they're, they're not, not protected. They're listed. And, right. Yeah. And the bill 23 includes a provision that if a listed, uh, building on the heritage register is not designated within two years, it's off the register. Right. And then those protections are no longer in place. So what we need to do as a city is if we, if we value the heritage core, we need to make sure that that heritage conservation district gets passed by council. That will provide some protection, but not, not entirely because any property owner developer who wants to demolish and rebuild something else on that site mm. can go to council for a demolition permit. Being designated doesn't in perpetuity protect that building from ever being developed. What mm -hmm. it does do is it, it protects it for a period of time. Mm -hmm. um, council can delist it. Council can de-designate it. Council can remove designated elements from, from the building, like the facade. They could keep the facade and demolish the other back half of the building for development. Facadeism is, a, is something that's used a lot in Toronto. You have these beautiful, beautiful bank facades in the Art Nouveau style, but behind it is a 30-story condo tower. Mm -hmm. um, and then if we if council de-designates it and the property or doesn't de-designate it and the property owner wants to take it to the Ontario Land Tribunal, they can do that. And then we're at the mercy of the land tribunal. Then we mm. no longer have control over heritage conservation at that point. So yeah, that does keep me awake at night because it is one of the things we value as a community. It does contribute to our economic development, our tourism, our, our, our civic identity. And it is environmentally sound practice to conserve buildings that are already built. When I say that, I know that you'll have listeners who are saying, but Leanne, housing, housing. <laughs> I hear that. And housing doesn't need to be 23 stories to provide what we must accommodate under Bill 23 and under the new legislation uh, that is in our official plan. We planned for the same population, 208,000 people by 2031. And we plan for it in a, in a, in a much more measured way, uh, much more environmentally responsible way and better planning. And I'm sorry, but the housing crisis, the climate crisis, and the affordability crisis are in this three-way battle. Mm. And there are ways with good planning that you can address all three successfully. Mm -hmm. And we're so focused on the housing crisis, it's not an excuse for bad planning. I think, I think, I think all that's fair. I, I think one of the things from looking at it from the other side of it, and I see a lot of realtors and uh, like business people in town, sort of when they see these um, fights that uh, like that end up coming down between housing and, and other matters. And uh, as you said, it shouldn't be an either or proposition, but when, when the debate kind of becomes framed like that, I think that I guess I'm thinking specifically about the, the fusion homes proposal for Wellington and Wyndham, 
where it's like an, it's a big empty right now it's where a gas station used to be but it's just like it's actually it's actually pretty nice right now it looks like a nice little park that's all fenced in but you know <laughs> there's no heritage building there there's i mean it used to be a gas station so i don't think anyone would miss a gas station on that corner but you know that's a 23 story proposal too is like is that out of bounds like to to allow one no not out of bounds at all in fact that site in our downtown secondary plan is is um envisioned as a site for a high density um um high um i think it's zoned for for 18 right so i think we can we can add density and add height to locations that been, have been identified in our secondary plan that can accommodate it. Add, and I'm sure if you, you're following on social media, you know that my, my proposed um, solution that actually adds more housing to this city, the entire city, than the amended OP that came down from the province is to put a 25% increase on the current zoning. So if it's zoned for 18, it can go to 23. If mm. it's zoned for six, it can go to eight. If it is zoned for 10, it can go to 12. So you add that 25% increase in height throughout the city, rather than saying everything in the downtown secondary plan is 23 stories, because there are sites that, will, that, that cannot accommodate 23 stories, no matter how much a developer might like to build. Um, but there are sites that can. So let's build them on the sites that can handle that density. Personally, I think most of that density is in the what I call lower town. So lower town is everything south of the tracks to Wellington, where the height of the building is not as massive because it's it's at the base of the drumlin rather than at the top of the hill. What it also does is it puts the density where our new future park is. And um, as you know, south of Wellington Street, it is envisioned in the secondary plan that we will acquire that parkland. The, the Angels Plaza is what most people know it as. Mm -hmm. That has been for almost a decade has been on the books to be an urban park that will link uh, the only broken section of our trail system from royal city park all the way to riverside park and what that becomes is the parkland for all these new residents because we're going to build all this capacity we're going to build all this housing and we have no parkland coming coming on stream so that um i call it jiggy city park which is a giveaway word for near the river uh, i don't call it wellington park that's a very colonial name and I, I, I know that we, we need to go through a proper naming process, but I, I refuse to call that park Wellington <laughs> Park. Um, but we have a vision. We have a vision to add density along Lower Town. And if it goes from 18 to 23, I think most people are okay with that because, as you said, there's no heritage mm -hmm. along there. There's a, there's a, there are a few pieces, um, mm. but those can be worked around. Um, and we have to, we have to, this, this blanket 23 stories across from all the way to London Road, all the way to Huron Street, all the way to Norfolk Street. That's, that's, um, that's just bad planning. Okay. I want to move on to other matters. Well, connected to housing. Um, at your town hall a couple of weeks ago, you did mention that you and your ward mate, Kathy Downer and the ward six counselors, uh, O'Rourke and Chu got a chance to sit down with the U of G and I appreciating you are an employee of the University of Guelph. Um, I wonder what you can share, like in terms of like the substance from that meeting in terms of like 
where like where the university is on sort of getting into the game. Yeah, I'm always careful of that hat, Adam. So thanks for pointing that out because I attended the meeting as the Ward 5 City Councillor. I did mm-hmm. it on my lunch hour, on my own time. Um, and so I'm able to share what is public information. Um, and what is public information is that the, the university enrollment uh, is intended to stabilize over the next couple of years, but there is a recognition that in the community, um, housing um, more and more students uh, certainly with the Conestoga announcement that that just heightens that need and that they are in the process of doing a housing analysis. That takes time. What they, what they're, it's not an if that's the message I took from the meeting. It's not a matter of um, should we build more housing it, on campus? It was more a matter of what, what type, what style, and should it be a more traditional um, uh, single double rooms with a um, shared washrooms traditional style? Should it be suites? Should it be more apartments? Do we need more family housing? Do we need more housing for international students year-round? Um, so th- it's those types of questions. Um, how big, uh, what type, and where will it go? Okay. It's, it's, it was kind of hard for me to suss out, and I was trying to do a lot of Googling on that, but it's been over a decade since any new kind of student accommodation has been built on campus, right? That's correct. Yeah. East Village townhouses was the most recent construction. Um, Of course, those partnerships with um, um, uh, Richmond Properties or or Chancellor's Way, as most people know it, that was a part that was a a private uh, builder, um, but on leased university land. Um, So those are those are, you know, complementary to the university's resident system, but not managed by the university. Right. This is the sticky part, because, again, appreciating uh, who you work for um, is is like for the University of Guelph to sort of like say like now we're going to do a housing analysis and take a look at what, at what we need. I mean, aren't, aren't we a bit behind the eight ball here? Like they've been t- adding like more, granted there was a period in there where students were staying at home because there was a pandemic, but you know this this has been a, a yearly thing more bigger new classes coming in it just it feels a bit weird to at this point saying okay now we're going to look at it right i can't speak to the timing i'm not i'm not in on on that level of decision making mm-hmm. um i can tell you that the the university enrollment prior to covid was fairly stable the mm-hmm. the, the jump last september was an anomaly and it was, and again, this is all public. I'm not saying anything out of turn. It was an anomaly, not necessarily because the university intended to have that level of enrollment. Um, it was the acceptance rate. Right. So, you know, you send out a certain number. It's a mathematical formula. You send out a certain number of offers and um, you expect a certain number of people to accept the offer. And it was a surprisingly... Uh, um, an unanticipated uh, increase in the number of acceptances, which led to the challenges that uh, were experienced throughout the city and the campus last year. That's about all I can I can say about about that. Other than you know that the, the housing in the community since 1874 has always been a town and gown um, relationship that ebbs and flows over time. And uh, um, we're heading into new territory, and the university was pretty quick to respond when last year's um, anomaly occurred. And I, I have uh, I have faith that um, the people making the decisions are going to uh, 
um, be making data-driven decisions um, uh, in the long-term best interests of the community. I want to look at this from the other side then, which is, you know, there's the plans for the, the 601 Scottsdale site. Um, you know, they, they've already opened up the, the portion that's in the old Holiday Inn. But then there's the, that big development that was proposed for the, the Days Insight, which is, is still your uh, within the, words, uh, the, the boundaries of your ward. And I know that, you know, that's going to the OLT. Uh, mm-hmm. Neighbors are still very, very concerned. Um, but I mean, again, in kind of like lieu of, of active participation from, from the university, it's kind of been left to private developers who, of course, see the dollar signs. And, you know, that's like this is this is going to be sticky. Like the, the Scottsdale situation are kind of like off to like at the corner of the Hanlon and you know, so maybe that that gets less attention, but you know, the the situation on Gordon Street, like that's going to be a couple of weeks in front of the ULT airing all that stuff out. You know, it's um I I guess what I'm getting at is that, you know, th- this is this is going to be sticky for a while. It's going to be sticky for a while and again, I I'm I'm I, uh, on that particular application, will be in a conflict of interest because I work in the housing portfolio at the university. So I want to talk in general terms about planning and purpose-built student housing and not about a particular site or a particular application. Purpose-built student housing has been um, happening at Waterloo and and at McMaster and, and at university campuses across North America. Guelph is new to the purpose-built model, um, but real estate investment trusts and asset management companies have known for a long time that there's money to be made in Mm -hmm. purpose-built student housing, and they've bought properties for that purpose. Some of them, like Forum Asset Management um, and Rise Group, are are this is their this is their business model. They are real estate developers. This is, um, you know, they have data behind their market. They know what the what the the price point is. Mm-hmm. Um, and they they know that getting land rezoned is the is is their model. So that being said, when anyone any developer, whether it's purpose built student housing or a seniors home, any developer, I don't want to talk about you know students in particular or demonize students in any way. They're very right. much a vibrant part of our economy and, and certainly in Ward Five. Um, and, and, and help inflate real estate values. So, you know, there's lots of benefits to, to having a student community and being a university town. That being said, developers developing any form of housing need to conform to our zoning bylaws. Mm-hmm. And for us to say, well, because it's for students, we're just going to throw out the zoning bylaws. We're going to throw out the parking requirements. We're going to throw out the amenity space. We're going to let balconies over top of people's yards. We're going to build fences and have lighted lighting. And we're, we're just going to throw out all the regulations that make a good compatible development for any demographic. We're going to throw it all out because it's purpose-built student housing. That's where we as a council need to say no build appropriate development because there may come a time um, globally we're going to experience a population decline within Mm. a decade. Um, Those, those um, facilities may return to the general market. Families, kids, couples, seniors, they may not be student housing in perpetuity. And we have to build for a future Guelph. This is a long game, as you and I'm sure you've heard me say that a million times. This is a long game 
Purpose-built housing for a specific demographic is not how we build and zone our city. Right. Let's talk about more fun stuff. Uh, doors open. Wealth is this weekend. Um, <laughs> what, what? Thank you for changing the subject, Adam. <laughs> um, well, you know, what, what, what do you recommend in terms of like, there, there's, I think there's nine different stops. So yeah. maybe without playing favorites, I don't know. <laughs> well, I have a soft spot for, for, you know, the older heritage, the homes, the things that you don't get to see publicly. Mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe I'm a little bit of a snoop that way, but I want to see the, the, the molding and the carpentry and the kitchen cupboards and the, the little, the intricate pieces of the heritage that is invisible to the public. Um, but every, a, a lot of the, the, the buildings on the, um, uh, on the list uh, are somewhat open to the public, but it's nice to have a tour guide to give you the history of the mm -hmm. building. Cause how many times do you walk by a building and you go, looks pretty basic to me. Uh, and then you hear the history and it's rich and it's colorful and it's, it's, um, um, it's of national significance, right? So, um, you know, the, the Gurdwara um, is actually something that really interests me. It's a, a, a really intricate design and, and the architecture of Gurdwaras around the world. Um, this rivals some of the best facilities um, in the world. Um, the Waterworks Building um, off of York Road is a really cool building. I've had the opportunity to see that in the past, so it's a it's a favorite of mine. It was a heritage adaptive reuse uh, of an old pumping station that the city undertook. There's a little bit of everything in in the uh, upcoming tours. All right, then let's talk about something you've kind of been leaning on, and I don't know how much response you've gotten, at least public facing wise, but you know talking about heritage this week um thinking about what happens four years hence when guelph turns 200 and i i know that the breezy breakfast gang is having this rakeout uh as we're recording this on wednesday they're having it tomorrow morning but it just um is is there some assurance that this is a big deal behind the scenes right now because it doesn't seem like a big deal in front of in front of the camera, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a good question because I've asked that question at council a lot and poor, uh, our poor DCAO is constantly saying, don't worry, Leanne. don't worry, Leanne, we, we'll, have, we'll have something. But, you know, a planning for a major event takes time. It takes at least five years. I know that the bicentennial or the, the centennial in 1927 was a huge event. There was there was uh, um, parades and they closed off, you know, streets and it was an old home week and it was um, business that they put out a special uh, book and a special edition of the Mercury. And I know mm -hmm. we don't have paper papers anymore, but um, it was a big deal. Um, so our bicentennial, I think, is, is going to be a big deal. This is this is a, a, a huge opportunity for tourism. Um, a huge opportunity for some legacy work by community organizations, whether it's building projects or by the city opening trails or parks, um, things that we already kind of have on the books that this would be a nice thing to um, align with uh, in 2027, the opening of the South End Rec Centre or the library, hopefully even before then. Uh, and it it's a way to celebrate our city. So yeah, I, I, it is a big deal for me. Community groups are already organizing. I know that the Guelph Historical Society has already put together a community working group 
of um, local heritage uh, or based organizations to start just talking about brainstorming ideas, whether it's a community placking program or tours or um, you know, just starting to brainstorm ideas. So the city hasn't put it in its budget yet. The city is not yet at the table. Um, I've been told, um, just be patient, Leanne. So I'm, I'm trying my very, very best <laughs> to be patient. But I, I see it as a big deal. I think the only thing I'd, I'd like to mention about that is we do need to be sensitive about the language. Right. Because the city of Guelph was not founded it mm. was always here. It was part of the Huron Tract. It was part of Treaty 3. It was, um, you know, home to First Nations, albeit as a, um, a hunting ground, not a, not a settlement. Um, but we need to ensure that our bicentennial is not a celebration of colonial, uh, colonialism, that our bicentennial is a celebration of the, the city being named and the settlement of the city and, and the positive aspects. But we absolutely have to include the Indigenous story, um, the story of before 1827, and, uh, and include our Indigenous um, and First Nations that are still here in the telling of that story. So we're, we're very sensitive to that, and that's important to me as well. And that's why, as I mentioned earlier, the... the, the um, the Jiggy Zippy Park along Wellington Street, along the river, uh, you know, that's something to me is something that we can dedicate to and honour our um, uh, Indigenous history um, through that parkland and by reclaiming the river and uh, honouring um, those who were here before us. Well, sounds like a lot of work, so I'm glad it's somebody's working on it, but yeah. I, I wanted to get that mentioned in there. But for now, that's the end of this story. So, uh, Leanne Caron, thank you so much for all your time today. Time flies with you, Adam, but thank you. <laughs> thank you for your time and for, for, uh, for your show and what you do in the community to bring these stories to life. Well, thank you. Okay, so once again, that was Leanne Caron, and uh, Doors Open is this weekend uh there's a doors open after dark although it technically starts before dark it starts at 5 p.m so i don't know why it's after dark dusky <laughs> yeah dusk <laughs> doors open dusk till after dark yeah it's um uh, naming aside it's this friday at the civic museum and then doors open proper is on saturday and if you, it, i don't have the website in front of me if you just google doors open guelph uh, it'll take you right to the website where you can find the list of locations and everything Anyway, that's it for us. And you can stay connected to us at our website, opensourcesguelph.com. You can find us on Facebook at Open Sources Newswire, and we're on Twitter at OS underscore Guelph. If you would like to listen to our show again, and why wouldn't you? You can download it from our website every Monday. You can get it at the Guelph Politicast channel on Podbean or through your favorite app at Apple, Stitcher, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. And when you're on Twitter and the Insta, you can find me personally at Adam A. Donaldson, or you can check out my news and politics site at GuelphPolitico.ca. I'm Scotty Hertz on Facebook, Twitter, and Mastodon. And if you're joining us at our regular time, 5 p.m. on Thursday, stay tuned for Turtle Island Underground coming up next at 6 o'clock. And you can stay tuned for more great programming just like that here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. We shall return, of course, next Thursday at 5 p.m. for another edition of Open Sources, and we will see you then.
Kant sempre que 